0: On a ten year journey to spiritual maturity. The first year, what we're trying to do is break the ordinary cycle of spirituality. One of the reasons that Christianity becomes so boring is because we reduce it to a formula. Formula, by the way, which does not work. One of the reasons that we feel like we're not making any progress is because we have downsized it to something that we have immediate answers for. And it takes something like having our idols dashed, having our formulas taken away, having the ordinary cycle of our lives broken before we can get back to the relationship that Christianity is instead of the religion that we've made. It is very important for us, therefore, when it comes to the substance of Scripture, To not go too fast, especially through the questions. Now, I have listed for you today in your bulletin ten questions, ten of the questions that Jesus asked. I'm not going to go through all ten of them. I'm going to go through four or five of them. And this is the exercise that I give you to do when you have time. If you have time this week. If you would sit down and look up those scriptures and let Jesus ask you those questions now in every one of those questions there's an immediate answer but I do not believe that the questions of Jesus are rhetorical I believe as a matter of fact that there is more substance in a question of Christ than in all of our immediate answers and I believe that one of the ways that we miss the meaning of God for our life is that our answers come too fast we love our answers And if we just can have our answers, we can dispense with the matter and be on our way. I'd like to encourage you this week to play with Scripture. Don't get to the answer too fast. Don't take the answer that's there as the only answer there is. Take these questions into your heart and play with them. Be creative with them. Say, God, how would you change your logos, your principle? Your answer that is, that is right for everybody into your rhema, your personal word for me, with this question. <clears throat> now, in order to give you permission to do that, I want, I want to show you how I've done it in my life. What some of these questions have meant to me. They are not the biblical answers, but they're what God has taught me in my life. Let's just go down um, through some of them. Turn to Matthew 12. And let's play. Can you come out and play? Starting in verse 22. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. This guy really had some problems, didn't he? And he healed him. Jesus healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons owned by, only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Now when I read a verse like that, it talks about the conflict within a house together and let me tell you what it conjures up in my mind many of you know that I'm teaching a course at uh, Reform Theological Seminary Church Leadership and management and one of the questions in there is how do you handle people who want to fight in the church especially who want to fight you I was brought up in a house of conflict one of our main avenues toward intimacy was fighting. Do you know that most fighting is done for the purposes of intimacy? I know it seems like a paradox, but if you think about it for a while, when do you have someone's undivided attention? When you have pushed their button. When they are in conflict with you, it may not be pleasant But at least they are giving you their full attention. Fighting is a form of intimacy, and many people start fights because they want your attention. And that's the form of intimacy that it's easiest to get. Now, in any family, there are always a few fuss budgets, aren't there? In your family, in your extended family, are there not one or two people that are not satisfied until they're fussing about something? Until they have found something that's wrong. Something that they want to tell somebody about. Now, if you've got a family of five or six, multiply that by six or seven hundred, and you've got the family of Northland. Now, let me ask you this. How many fuss budgets do you think we have in this church? Lots. (laughs) That really believe that they will improve the situation by pointing out what's wrong. One of the things that I tell my students, and that I need to tell you, is that fuss budgets usually just want to be assured personally that you're paying attention to them. So many times the conflict will go away. If you sit down and you pay attention to what they've said, and you've learned from what they said. Fuss budgets, by the way, usually have a good point. I mean, they're usually not you're clear off the deep end. You can learn from them. It's a wonderful thing. You don't have to become a fuss budget yourself. But, even in that, there are in any gathering of thousands of people, several, who are out to destroy. They are out, not to build, but out to show their power in what they can tear down. That is their attitude, and that being their attitude, that comes from the other side. You know that Satan means adversary. And these people are permanent adversaries. What do you tell somebody who faces a permanent adversary? No matter what you say, it will never appease them because they're out to destroy the world. They are angry, frustrated people. How do you cope with people like that? You know what the words of Jesus mean to me? A house divided cannot stand, can it? Those people are a house unto themselves. They are divided within themselves. You can't see someone who is angry and frustrated who is not having a civil war inside. And as much as I hate to see it, sooner or later those people will take themselves out of the picture. Sooner or later they will destroy themselves because anger and destructiveness always turns on itself. And no matter what you do, sometimes you cannot prevent that person from committing what is social, not physical, suicide. Because pride always overextends itself and anger always comes back at itself. Now when you're the head of a family, or you're in some leadership position in a family, It is of the greatest assurance to know that God's kingdom that's built on love of people coming together however imperfectly will last forever. I will build my church, Christ said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is also of great substance to know that evil will eventually cave in. It will implode. Many people are worried about Evil exploding. Evil implodes. And over 21 years of ministry, I have never had to take someone out politically. I have watched them for a while, and one after another after another after another messes their own life up in some way. That's a great lesson. Do you not know that a house divided cannot stand? You listen to that question. And it begins to teach you very much about life. And very much about the civil war that may be having its day in you. Let's go to another one. This is a little bit more fun. How about uh, Matthew 15? Some of these are fun and some of them aren't. Matthew 15. This is one of the feeding of the thousands of people. This is the feeding of the four thousand. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? Now, in other readings, the disciples say this, Well, give them something to eat, Jesus. And Jesus looks back and says, You give them something to eat. You're going to be the ones that are feeding them. And then secondary to that, you hear this question, Where are we going to get the loaves? I mean, there's no store. There's no place. There's no source. Where are we going to get the loaves? We don't have enough. We couldn't possibly have enough. And Jesus asked this question, verse 34. And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. Now most of us are off to the miracle, aren't we? I mean, we just want to see the miracle happen. Oh, he's got seven and a few fish. Okay, let's see how he does this. Not so fast. I want you to dwell on that question for a while. How many loaves do you have? What do you have that you can pitch into the cause here? When I, when I hear this question, I, I go back. There was a, there was a, Man in my neighborhood that may be like someone in your family or in your past. He was a fascinating character. His name was Francie Simon. He lived catacorner to us. And Francie had a wooden leg. And there, oh, there's nothing more fascinating. I mean, he had war stories. He must have had a dozen war stories of how he lost that leg and he'd tell us those war wars tell us how, we, how you lost your leg Francie you know and it was it was just at the knee here and, and we'd, say, we'd go over to his house and say Francie can we knock on your leg and he'd pull up his leg and we'd knock oh they're so it's so fascinating for a boy to see a wooden leg he was a character and then out in his garage he had a repair place I mean he had gadgets and widgets and, and all kinds of things and you talk about fascinating for boys and we'd go out and he'd say now boys he'd pull out something see like a long bolt and a and a nut, and he'd oil it up, and he'd say, "Watch this!" And he'd spin it. Vroom, the thing would go straight to the top. He'd say, "Now there's a toy for you, isn't that great?" He said, "If this was in a store, I bet I could sell this for a dollar fifty." Then he'd look at us and he'd say, "Any of you boys want to buy this for a dollar fifty?" And we'd say, "Well, Francie, we don't have any money. We don't have any money." And he'd always say the same thing. Well, what do you have? Well, we'd start digging. See? And, and if it was into the afternoon, you know, boys collect things in their pockets. All day you collect things. You see stuff and you pick it up. Well, that's valuable. See? You put it in your... And by the afternoon, your pockets are going like this here. So we'd start digging it out. Say, well, I got a bottle cap. It's not even hardly bent. It's just a perfectly good bottle cap. How about that? No, I don't want a no bottle cap. I got a bottle cap. Well... They pull out a feather. See, look at that feather I got. Boys, it's just a little plume's missing up, but it's perfectly good feather. And I got some of a robin's egg. It's, it's, it's kind of mashed. It's blue, but it's kind of mashed. How about that? And I got, boy, oh, you just, boy, oh, shiny rocks. Boy, oh boy, we must have collected a thousand shiny rocks. You know, look at that thing sparkle, Francie. Look at that thing. Well, Francie'd look it over. He'd say, well, that's a pretty shiny rock I tell you That's pretty nice But uh, Do I see a marble there I like marbles Yeah I got a marble Right here I found one today It's a cat's eye Marble Say, so, said Well I tell you I, I, I could use a marble Tell you what You got a hug To throw in with that marble Yeah Oh we got all the hugs You want Okay you give me a marble Boy we'd take that bolt And we'd spin it all afternoon There wasn't much to do In Shelby Ohio <laughs> Not much to do and a bolt and a nut just kept us going for a long time. See? Then we'd be back the next day. See? But I loved to hear that question. We don't have enough for... What do you have? What have you got? See? Bob Benson was a grand saint before he went to be with the Lord. And he wrote a few really neat books. One was See you at the House. And in that book he tells a story when he was a little boy. He was the only one in his family to go to church. And he liked his church family and, and he'd run there as a neighborhood church every day and, and they'd have Sunday school picnics. Remember Sunday school picnics we, uh, only, we call them, they're not like carrions where you mix all the food automatically. Everybody brings their own picnic basket and then they eat together. Well, as a little boy, see, he'd forget it until the day of the service and then they'd say well, don't forget this afternoon directly after church we're going to have a Sunday school picnic well he said if you were like me if you are like any little boy you'd run home and you'd open up the refrigerator and and see what there was that you could take for yourself to eat at the Sunday school picnic and he said if you were like me you'd open up that refrigerator and you'd see one dry curled up piece of bologna remember that old, you know what happens to bologna when it dries up don't you well if that's all you had you got it out and there was just maybe if you were like me you you found just enough mustard in the bottom of the jar to scrape that out get the mustard all over your fingers you know and scrape that on that bologna and slap it between two stale pieces of bread and get an old wadded up sack and take it to the picnic and he said if you were like me you'd put it there on the end of the picnic bench and wait for everybody to eat and if you were like me there was some church lady that had cooked for this thing for three days. (laughs) And if you were like me, she always found her way to your table. And she could cook as good as she could pray. And she'd spread out that chicken and those beans and that potato salad and those biscuits. And we'd get ready to eat. And she'd look over and she'd say, say, is that a baloney sandwich you got there? And you'd kind of get ashamed. Well, yeah. She'd say, oh, I love baloney. I've always loved baloney. Say, that wouldn't happen to have mustard on it, would it? And you'd perk up a little bit and say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it does. She'd say, oh, I know this is terrible, but I've I tell you what if you could just see your way clear to maybe cut off a piece of that baloney sandwich for me and and maybe we could just mix all of our stuff together then I'd love that would that be okay with you well I reckon it would <laughs> and he said in there I was up a dried up old baloney sandwich and I was chicken and biscuits everything I ate like a king He said, isn't that just like God? What do you have? Well, I have got some bologna. God says, well, I've always loved bologna. How about if you just bring that to the banquet and we'll mix all of our stuff together and see how it comes out. Isn't that just like God? You know what? When God asks us to do something, it's always too much for us to do. Oh, we've got just a little snippet. We're almost ashamed to offer it. But that wonderful question comes What do you have? God says, I want you to love this woman right here. And you go, Oh, God. I can't. No way. I can't love her. She's obnoxious. She hurt my feelings. And besides... I haven't got enough love in me for me, let alone for me and her. And that question comes. Well, what do you have? Well, you start looking around. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, maybe I've got five minutes a day when I could read Scripture. God said, well, why don't you just start doing that and we'll see what happens. Pretty soon. You start finding excuses for her for how she is pretty soon you start seeing reasons for how she is pretty soon your heart begins to break for how she is you just bring a little bit and you watch what God does what do you have? let's go to the next one how about uh Matthew twenty verse fifteen. This is the parable about the labor pool. Now the labor pools back then operate somewhat like the labor pools do today. You go down and you wait and you ask or you you hope that somebody comes in and hires you. You know there used to be an old guy come come here every year. I miss him. Uh, he just came down here for the winter. He's real old and he used to gripe about the labor pools. All those young whippersnappers just run right out there and get the jobs. Tough to get labor anymore. Tough to get jobs anymore. You never used to be. I miss him. Hope he'll show up again. But anyhow, this is about the vineyard owner who goes, who needs help and so he goes down at the beginning of the day and still needs more help and he comes part way through the day and, and still needs help and so he comes at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, after some people have only worked for an hour or so. He gives them the same wage that he gave the ones that started at the beginning of the day. And the ones that started at the beginning of the day are justifiably angry because in their way of thinking, to their standard, it is not fair. And they complain. And the Bible says, but he, the vineyard owner, Answered and said to one of them, this is verse 13, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? What a question that is. I read a good book this week called Unapologetic Theology. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the term apologetics, apologetic is the classical term for the reasoned defense of the Christian faith to non-believers. And apologetics has always had this inkling in the back of its mind that if people could just act on their own reason and wipe away everything they've been taught, particularly about their particular religions, we would all get back to a place and some reasoned underlying universal principle that everyone would recognize immediately as per God's existence. And so apologetics tries to work its way back to a reason that everybody recognizes whether or not they're Christian, whether or not they're believers in any God. Now that's not a bad goal. However, what Placker says, and Placker is a professor of philosophy and religion at Wabash College, and what he says is, there has never been a time when philosophy has been able to grasp conclusively that there is such a standard, some independent standard with which we can get to God some independent standard that rules the universe instead of a personal belief in God. Neither philosophy nor science has been able to reach that point. As a matter of fact, science, with its quest for the unifying principle of the universe, gets fuzzier and fuzzier. It has its own personality quirks. Quarks? Personality? All right, all right. Let me go on. Golly. One bad joke and you're not left. Anyhow, a quark is the smallest unit of the universe. It's fuzzy. It doesn't have any substance. It's just kind of a thing. Thank you. Okay, all right. You just didn't like it. (laughs) Bob Lane's going, we got it. We just thought it was crummy. Okay. (laughs) This guy says, even the Cartesian exercise, the Rene Descartes, that says, let's doubt everything until we come up with one indubitable principle. I think, therefore I am. That's where he came with his. Even that does not get us to the place where, without conflict, there is a recognizable, visible, as Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll I'll move the earth. There isn't anything like that. And Placker's point is, there is no way we can come out of Our particular theological upbringing and if there were there would be no place to go because there is not that independent standard now why do I tell you that? I tell you that because for years I tried to judge God on what was fair and what was not on how he ran the universe I thought that I had the reasoned independent underlying principle of the universe that even God ought to obey but there isn't such a thing. And I confused myself silly trying to judge God on how he ran the universe, on what was fair and what wasn't fair. Instead of just admitting some things didn't make any sense to me, but coming to the question that God would say, who owns this world? Well, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. And then the follow-up question is, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? I tell you what, if you can answer that question with your life, if you can say to God, yes, God, you can do anything you want, whether or not it makes sense to me, because this is your place, not mine, you will be relieved of a tremendous responsibility. And trying to run the universe and tell God how to run his end of it. It will be a wonderful relief. I can remember being in college and my roommate was a Christian. I was not a Christian yet. I had watched this guy for several years waiting for him to trip up, you know, thinking this is gonna end. This is just a phase. But his faith was real and so I began to get convicted. But I wasn't a Christian yet. And he was a collector of records and in college there was a song that was popular, this tells how old I am, by uh, uh, the Detroit Wheels or something like that. Anyhow, it's called C.C. Rider. And I don't, I don't know, remember the words to this day, but somebody rumored that there were some dirty words in that song. Well, that really made me want to listen to it bad. <laughs> so I said, Army, let's play the record. And Army says, you know what? Somebody told me there's some dirty r- words in this record. And he takes the record And he breaks it. But I said, what'd you do that for? I said, you're a Christian, I'm not. I like the dirty words. You know, giving it, letting me let you. It's a waste. And he looked at me and said, I don't want to contribute to the garbage of this world. This is my record. And if I want to break it, I can break it. Well, he was right. That was Army's record. This is God's universe and he can do anything he wants with it is it not lawful for me to do what i want with what is my own if you can answer that question if you can play around with that until you can say yes he'll search out all kinds of things in your life that he will relieve the tension for you let's go let's go one let's go one or two more maybe just one more <clears throat> mark 12 <clears throat> Mark 12, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now as you're turning to that, this is the famous famous passage where Jesus gives a great answer to people who are trying to trap him. They're trying to trap him into saying, no, you don't pay taxes, you give everything to God. You just give to the temple, you don't give to the government. I love great answers. I don't know how many of you saw... Clarence Thomas's mother being interviewed after, after he had gotten the thing, you know. And throughout the whole process, of course, there's a lot of confusion and your, your emotions go here and there and so on and so forth. But I tell you what, CNN interviewed his mother and they got more than they bargained for. <laughs> this woman was an on-fire Christian. And of course, they kept baiting her, you know. Well, wow, what would you do with Anita you know, Anita Hill. I'd pray for her. I'm a Christian. Christians can't hate people. That woman, she just needs God. She just needs God. I just hope she gets God. What? Boy, well, I didn't know what to do with that. So they, said, so they said, well, what about these accusations against clearance? You know, and she said, I'll tell you what, any boy say anything like, of mine like that, I just stand up and box him in his mouth. You can <laughs> He got mother, he got sisters, you don't say that, he's a Christian boy, you don't say that. She said, if I couldn't get to him, I'd take off my shoe and throw it at him, you can't, it was great. And she kept saying my God, sit up high and look low, you know, oh, it was a a revival, you know. They they switched off as soon as they could. They were, I mean, they were stomach I love to see someone with a strong answer. And this is the way I pictured Jesus this day, you know, whose inscription's on here. Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then give it to Caesar. <laughs> give Caesar what's Caesar's and God's what's God. Now, I love that question. Whose inscription's on this? Because when you begin to answer that question, you begin to know that not everything that we have in this world is to be used in the same way. Yet, there are appropriate things to do that do not necessarily take place in the temple. In other words, you don't have to squeeze everything into a religious formula before it has worth, before it has a use in the providence of God. I tend to be, like some of you, a workaholic. And I tend to only want to work on things that are scripture-related and church-related and so on and so forth. To the extent that I confess sometimes I don't take time with my family. And that's an awful, awful thing. Friday, however, the boys were out of school. And Josh was off looking at a college someplace. And Isaac was going with a friend to the Gator game. And so that left my 10-year-old and I, Joel, at home. Because Becky was teaching that day. She didn't get that day off. So I walked in. I said, Joel, how would you like to go to a movie today? He goes, oh, that would be great. It's a man thing. And we'll do a man thing. It's us men, you know. So I said, "Oh, well, what do you want to see? He said, I'll tell you what I want to see. I want to see Ernest Scared Stupid. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Don't look for this at the Academy Awards. But that was okay. You know, we're going to go see Ernest. You know, he's a funny guy with a baseball hat and all that kind of stuff. So anyhow, we're, we just walk in and, you know, a lot of times you're very conservative but you know when you're having a blowout day with the boys well you just blow it out and we swagger it up to the to the what are the counter there you know confession oh yeah we just started pointing you know give me a little butterfinger give me a little milk duds give me that popcorn you know we, we have so much food of course we've got a large diet coke America, I can figure that out. anyhow we went in that theater and ate ourselves into oblivion. I mean, <laughs> we were so, uh, chocolate all over popcorn all down our shirts. It was great. It was absolutely great. The movie was hilarious, you know, I mean, it was just stupid, but it was fun. I mean, it was a guy thing, you know. And then we went out and we said, oh, well, I'll tell you what, mom's birthday, Becky's birthday's coming right up, and so we said, we're gonna go just, we know she likes to go shopping and we're gonna go dress shopping with her. Holy cow. You know men and women shop different, don't you? Men go out and buy. They don't shop. Men buy. And women, she never did buy a dress. I mean, we went in we went into ladies shops all over that mall. And I would rather be run over by a truck. <laughs> Honest to goodness. We were in the fifth dress shop and Joel looked at me and said, Dad, I'd rather be in school. But of course every time she came out, I said, Oh, that's a pretty dress, you know. And they always got, they always got one little seat that the man can sit on. There's one chair, sir. Would you like to sit in this chair? So I'm going over, and we're sitting, in, and we start getting punchy, you know. I mean, we got all this sugar in us. We just watched the dumbest movie in the whole world. So Joel goes, Dad, can you do this with your face?" You know. And I said, "Well, I don't know. Let me try." You know, just laughing, and he starts playing his note. And there's this real finely dressed woman there, you know, and she's looking at us and says. I said, lady, this is male bonding at its best right here. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm glad I don't have to look up a scripture to go with that. (laughs) I'm glad I don't have to squeeze that in church. I'm glad that I don't have to rationalize and say, well, Lord, maybe someday he'll play his nose for you. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we don't have to do that. Who's inscription's on this? Well, render under the family what's the family's. Under God what's God's, and the government what's the government, and friendships what's friendships, and the churches what's the churches. All of it will fit. Whose inscription? Don't try to change the inscription. We got time for one more? Just one more. Just one more. Um, go down to uh, Luke twelve twenty. I won't take very long with this, but this is, this is so important, I think. This is about the guy who was a great businessman. Verse 16, the land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? I'm sure that if you are middle-aged like me, you get things in the mail every day, how to prepare for your retirement. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it's good to take steps and, and be wise about those things. That's a, that's a good thing. But the idea that it gives me is that all that I am accumulating is for me, for my security. But that's not the question Jesus asked. Jesus said, who will own what you have prepared? You know what? It doesn't matter how long you live. You will bequeath your life to other people. And I'm not just talking materially. I'm talking emotionally. You bequeath your emotional patterns to other people. You bequeath your faith to other people. Everything that you think is in your possession right now, God will see that someone else gets. Now, he's asking you this question. Who are you preparing it for? And do you understand that in all of its richness, it's not for you, it's for them? Do you understand that? I heard a story one time, I'll close with this. I heard a story one time about a missionary who went to an African village. And one of the the villagers gave his life to Jesus Christ. And that missionary said, okay, I want to help you grow. And he gave him a little Bible. He said, you read this Bible. That will grow you strong. So that you will know God. Well, he just thought that was the greatest thing in the whole world. And he took that Bible. And the missionary went on to other villages. Nine months later, he came back. And here comes this little man with his Bible. On his Bible... Looked like it had been through World War Three. I mean, it was all scruffy, and there were many pages missing. It was apparent. The missionary was hurt. He said, "I thought you would prize that Bible." And the villager looked at him and said, "This is the greatest present I've ever had in my life. And when I read it, I went to my father." and I tore out a page for him. And then I went to my mother, and I tore out a page for her, and to my brothers, and to my families. And when I had finally read it enough, I went to my enemies and tore out a page for them. All that you have is for someone else. Who are you preparing it for? Pray with me. God, your word is so rich. And we know that the questions that you ask us were not to be confined to one point in history for one person to make one impact. But those questions are still for us. We would ask for two things this morning. First of all, for those who don't know you, don't even know how to hear your questions, but would like to know you, we would ask that right now they could open their hearts and in their way invite you in because of the way you have made in Jesus Christ that they could ask Jesus to come and live in their heart so that they could follow Him and so that they could understand the richness of Your Word. For the rest of us, Lord, we would ask that You would break up our normal Christianity. Help it not to work. So that we will not have a religion, but we will have a relationship with you. So that we will not depend on the formulas, but we will be thrown onto our faith. And teach us that if we have faith as much as a grain of mustard seed, that's enough for what you can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.